0: Hello, welcome to How to Write a Play. I'm Alex, I work for the Old Fire Station Arts Centre in Oxford and we're currently running a playwriting course with Triple Olivier Award winner Mike Bartlett. Stay tuned for Mike's advice, writing tips, writing exercises, answers to questions from listeners and our thoughts on the theatre world in 2023. Today we're talking about reviews. Mike, what are we covering in the course?
1: We are going to look at tools you can use to refine your play, I think.
0: Coming up this week at the old fire station, we have Holly McNish, the poet, on the 12th of July, and she is sold out. So, and her waiting list is like 150 people. So, I'm wow. sorry, listeners, you've got no hope.
1: Shouldn't even have mentioned it. I'm
0: sorry. And then on the fourteenth of July we have Ballet Folk, which is going to be really lovely. It's a celebration of this company who do ballet dancing to folk music, and it use a lot of folklore in what they do. And they've been going for five years, and it's a celebration of them and their that process.
1: Sounds brilliant. It's going to be great.
0: Mm. And I also wanted to take this moment to talk about Theatre Club, which is a new thing. Last week I talked about our one pound tickets game. This week I'm talking about a Theatre Club. Theatre Club is an opportunity for if you ever want to come to shows and you don't have anyone to go with, like me sometimes, am I only doing this for myself, maybe, or you're new to coming to the theatre and you want a bit more context or you want to find out a bit more, or if you just really like going to the theatre and you want to talk about it with people, like a book club, Theatre Club is for you. So we are going to be running Theatre Club once a month from September, you buy a ticket for the show come along half an hour before you come into the gallery you have a free soft drink we have a chat i give a bit of context as to why we book the show and what the show is about and the company and all that and then we go and watch the show together and afterwards we have another little chat for 30 minutes
1: this is a brilliant idea thank you that's really cool I'm
0: very pleased I so it happens so
1: it happens once a month for a particular show yes. You'll say watch, so we've like, what selected the show
0: so our first show is going to be on the 12th of september and it's kinder and it's Brilliant. puppetry. For the first oh. three, I've picked three different shows, puppetry, theatre and comedy. And then after that, I'm hoping that Theatre Club will help me pick great. which shows we go to. And then also feedback on the programming of the old fire station. And what if you liked this, what can we program of that's more like that? If you hated this and we should never program it again, what should we avoid? that kind of
1: thing amazing and is there a limit to the numbers of people that can join theatre club
0: no only as many as there are tickets available to the show amazing but we might not have drinks for everyone because drinks for 124 people is quite a lot we might not be able to fit that many drinks on a table in the gallery so if you live in oxford and you're free on the 12th of september come to theatre club and look it up oldfirestation.org.uk forward slash theatre club So this week, the stage and what's on stage in various places have been talking about reviews. They're very in the news at the moment. And the reason for that is that Time Out have decided that their theatre reviews are only going to have stars of three or higher. So if your show is reviewed and the reviewer thinks it is a one or two star show, they will publish the review unrated, which means they won't have a star rating. If they review a show and it comes out as a three or higher, they will publish it with a star rating. And that made me wonder what your take was, Mike, on reviews. Do you read them? I used to work for of House at the Royal Shakespeare Company and there was a particular actor who hated reviews and anything about themselves ever. And so at the beginning of the day, they always put newspapers in the green room and the stage doorkeeper would go through and snip all mention of this person out of the papers so that they didn't have to look at themselves. Which, I mean, I okay. think everyone should do that. I think that sounds great. Um, do you read them? Do you listen to them? Has a review ever changed your mind or made you change something?
1: Yeah, I, well, I do, I do read them. I don't know whether I should. I do. I think I sort of want to know in the immediate aftermath of the press night. I just want to know what the reviews are like to know whether we're going to sell tickets. That's the real immediate impact on why they're important is that if you do well with the reviews, you'll sell more tickets, you might have a future life, et cetera, et cetera. More people might see your show. And then some of the good. Critics that I find interesting can provide a perspective on your work. That's really good. I think there have been shows where I've read them and they've really seen the flaws that I knew were in the show. And I sort of go, well, you're right. And you can't really argue with that. Generally, I don't mind critics. I think they're important. And in that most people will experience your show through the reviews, you know, reading it in the paper or on the website or whatever. So they're really important in keeping theatre in the sort of public consciousness. So we need to encourage good critics, I think, and good reviews and interesting writing and drawing meaning out of the plays to make it relevant. Why is it important that you go and see this play now? What is it trying to do? I think all of this is really great stuff for reviews to do. I think when it gets tricky is when they get mean. Borderline abusive, because the thing is, the difference between a novel and a film or even a piece of music is that the actors who are human beings have to go on in front of a load of people and do it the following night in person. And that's phenomenally hard if someone in a national newspaper has called you ugly or criticized some aspect of your appearance or indeed your performance. On a human level, that's quite hard. And I think how does one balance that with the critics being honest? Well, for a start, don't be abusive, you don't need to do that. But also, I think they just need to be sophisticated in the way that they write about the work. It's professionalisation, is to be honest, what it is. It's like we've done that in almost all industries over the last 40 years. It's moved from it being quite, for instance, lunchtime drinks. Journalists used to get drunk all the time and whatever, and they've generally professionalised. You know, everyone has now, and I think it's part of that process for critics to become you know, really great writers, really interesting, but less personal and less abusive to individuals. But tell me, why are they not putting one or two stars?
0: So what they said in their statement was it was what they did in 2021. And it's also, it's what a few places do for the fringe. I think will do it at the fringe as well. So it's, I think it's a way to be kind. So if you see a review pop up on Twitter, you don't see a one star. Mm. You just see a pull quote. Sure. And that is kinder to yeah, the artist. I can see that. A lot of places didn't do star ratings after COVID uh, just as we were coming back. Time Out didn't do low star ratings. They just did unrated reviews after COVID as a way to be kind. Like you're making work in the most difficult time any of us in our lifetime have had to make work. So even if I think your show is one star, I'm not going to slap that on in a really obvious way. I'm just going to say I didn't think it was a very good show and leave it at that.
1: And that probably also reflects the spirit of generosity that an audience would feel after not being able to see any work for so long. Mm -hmm. The spirit is a bit different. The first review I got was in The Scotsman for a Fringe show that I wrote. And it was in a section of the newspaper called The Review Dumpster. And the review went, Mike Bartlett's play drenches us with language. Shame most of it's rubbish. One star. That was it. And that was pretty much the only review we got. So I I got a
0: three star of the first fringe show that i did and i was heartbroken by that so i'm feeling this is quite good you
1: You count yourself lucky with your three stars would have killed for three stars i i don't know i mean it's sort of like in trying to remember how i felt getting that review i didn't necessarily think the show was amazing but i thought you're using the show for an amusing bit of your paper called the review dumpster so i don't mind fair criticism but this is just pointing and laughing really yeah that critic who wrote that review is still reviewing now your nemesis i can't say who they are but they know who they are
0: if you're listening <laughs> write in info at tell, yeah. a, tell us what you think of
1: mike's latest plays the other problem with this though which we probably should talk about is that the audience for the reviews isn't people who work in theater it's the readers and that's what the critic is thinking about is how can they get eyeballs on what they write. So I would be surprised if many publications follow to rule out a one-star review because the most interesting reviews for a reader are going to be a five star and a one star, aren't they? Because of those extremes, I mean it's the same in every sort of clickbait and media at the moment, is that they've cottoned on that the more extreme something is, the more interested people will be and the more they'll be drawn to it. So I would suspect one stars are going to remain in in most places. I mean, the other thing to say is the New York Times is interesting because they don't do stars at all. And the Observer used to be that. The Observer used to not do any and then they secretly put them on the website now. But the New York Times is interesting because it doesn't, you know when you read the New York Times review, whether it's a hit or it's not. You you sort of do the star calculation in your head. But it does encourage you to actually read the review. And I think that's what I would really love is if we got rid of them all. And you had to actually use words to describe what you experienced rather than stars. It's inevitably reductive, isn't it, to what is a complicated, nuanced art form that's quite subjective and multifaceted and increasingly, hopefully, diverse in not just what it is, but what its aims are and what audience it's for. And it does so many things. To reduce that down to one to five stars feels uh, a little bit dispiriting.
0: There have been some excellent marketing campaigns where people have used one star's the other day, I saw an advert for Aspects of Love in the West End that had all four and five stars. And then it was a one star from maybe the Telegraph. I now, of course, can't find this advert, but it, it was a really funny, like, five star, five star, five stars, five, star, five star, one star. Yeah. is really funny. And lots of comedians do that, especially yes. with papers like the Daily Mail. So they'll say, Guardian says this, Time says this, da-da-da says this. Disgusting, the Daily Mail. Yeah. Too Many Penis Jokes, The Guardian is an example that uh, Linus Karp, who's an artist who comes here a lot, uses on a lot of his work.
1: Yeah, and that's great. And and I think you have to sort of, you know, with time, I think for anyone who gets a bad review, as someone who got a bad review as my first, like a really bad review as my first review, I, I would say time does heal, actually. and And I also think that there's not a one-to-one link between the plays of mind that have done well or people remember or people have taken to heart and meant something to them and the ones that have got the best reviews. And even the ones that have been seen as successful, one looks back, they're not the ones with the best reviews. It's, there's some other energy because ultimately the audience judges. Ultimately the audience comes out and either they tell their friends, you've got to go and see this, or they don't. And if it is a word-of-mouth show, that will push past critics. It just will. The theatre will slowly get full or it will maintain its audience against expectations, and that will tell you that the show itself is doing something that goes beyond marketing and into just people saying, you've got to see this while it's on. And similarly, if a show is overhyped and gets five stars but actually is not delivering, you often find those shows, you know, despite all the five-star reviews, come off early in the West End or something. So I do think the proof of the pudding ultimately is in what happens in the auditorium with the audience. And that is really where you want to be judged, isn't it? So that's quite encouraging, I think.
0: What are we covering in the course this week?
1: So in the course, the writers are working on their plays and hopefully getting going on them. There's just sort of various bits and pieces of their sort of tools you can use, if they're useful, to kind of keep the ball in the air, like we've said, about how to keep interest, how to tell your story, how to use certain techniques. So we're going to look at exposition which is sort of landing information with the audience. And the most obvious way of doing exposition is, there was always a joke that people used to say about radio plays where people go, the gun I'm holding in my left hand is loaded. Um, That's poor exposition. Um, And on stage, it would be someone spelling out how they feel, who they are, what they want in words.
0: The king, my father, your brother.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. So we're going to do an exercise where we're gonna come up with a character, we're gonna work out their age, maybe their nationality, we're gonna work out what they're feeling, we're gonna work out what they want and their relationship status, what their need is, and maybe their class. And then we're gonna work out a stage direction to try and convey all of these facts, but without using any dialogue. So what other tools do we have on stage that are that we can use to convey information that aren't just someone talking? And we are going to then apply that to their plays, take a character from the writer's play and describe that character. And how would you convey all that information without spelling it out in dialogue? And then we're going to do a romantic comedy game, which is where imagine there's two characters who fancy each other, but don't realize the other one fancies them or haven't or don't know that yet and are too shy or British to say how they feel. So they're not allowed to say how they feel. And we're going to write a scene, and there has to be a moment in the scene when they realise that they both fancy each other, but they can't say it. So what what happens in the scene? What are you going to use? What tools have you got to convey that realisation? And then sort of at the end of the exposition section, we're going to talk about inarticulate characters, because in a way it's quite easy to write characters who are verbally excellent and can talk and express themselves. But of course, a lot of people in life, perhaps even me on this podcast, find it difficult to articulate themselves and to speak clearly. or And actually, there's a lot of mileage in conveying character through inarticulacy. But how then does one convey things about that character if they cannot express them? So I want to experiment with writing a monologue with an inarticulate character where they're trying to speak, but they find it difficult. And then we're going to have to think about this, but the crucial moment in that monologue where something changes or they realize something needs to be non-verbal. So it's a stage direction because dialogue is only one part of the picture on stage. So you can convey information in all other ways. And really all these exercises are trying to convey that. And then spinning off from that, I want to look at mysteries. Hugh Laurie has an excellent song called Mystery. If you don't know it, Google it. It's on YouTube. We'll
0: We'll link it in the show notes.
1: Link it in the show notes. Good. So mystery is about withholding information. And this and the other things we'll talk about are sort of optional because they, they're kind of tools to keep interest or structural tools. I more often use them on television than in theatre because I think in theatre they can seem, you have to be very careful that they don't seem schematic or plotty or a bit manipulative. There are great writers that use tools like this but it's withholding information, so the audience knows there's a mystery and they're waiting for it, but they don't know what it is. So the exercise is, i are going to imagine a character and we go, what's the truth that is finally revealed? So the deep, dark truth, right at the end of the play, you go, oh, that's the mystery revealed, what is it? So, for instance, it might be a guy killed his daughter. So then we're going to ask, what do the audience think it is two minutes before? And that might be um, that his daughter died. So they know his daughter died, they know he killed his daughter. And then we're going to say, what do the audience think halfway through the play? So that might be that he doesn't want to have kids. He hates kids. And then what do we think at the beginning of the play? Well, then we might think he's he's sort of shut down in himself, and he's shut down to emotional things, and that's a character thing. So then you can see as you plot that play out, you've got a story, which is that you've got a shut down character who we find out doesn't like kids for some reason. Why? Oh, his daughter died. No, He killed his daughter, and the mystery is revealed. So with these things, you work backwards, and then you withhold the information. But just an exercise like that is quite good to go. How do you plot that out across the play? And the tricky thing with mysteries, and this is often true in television, is that it's quite easy to plot a mystery arbitrarily. But how does it carry meaning? Why are you withholding information? So in that instance, the reveal of that mystery is actually reflective of that character's attempt to bury that within that truth within themselves. So that carries meaning. There could be other reasons that you hold a mystery back, but one has to be careful doing it just because it keeps the audience's attention. The idea that you are only watching to find out the mystery. If that's true, you've kind of failed already. And you see that sometimes in TV as you feel like, You're making up for the fact this is quite boring by just going keep watching to the end so you get the you know what's in the box you know it's not it's not enough but it's a it can be a good tool to hook an audience and bring them through and so we're going to ask in the writer's plays is there any information that you could hold back to create suspense and mystery to help take the audience through the play maybe there isn't but it we'll have a think about that another tool you can do is the ticking clock which is where something is going to happen later in the play. And that is a fixed deadline. That is ticking down as the play goes on. And so it's implying pressure and urgency to the action of the characters. So the exercises will go, what is the deadline? So it might be a, a wedding. What happens if the deadline is missed? So what are the stakes? So if, if we imagine our main character is a best man, if he misses the wedding, then he loses his friendship, his best friend. So that's quite high stakes. When does the clock start? So we might imagine it's the morning that the best man wakes up, and how does it start? Like how is the audience told so that that relates to to exposition? Really, is that if we imagine a scene of the best man waking up, realizing what the time is, and then putting on a wedding suit and rushing, and then finding that his car's got a flat tire, then we already we know the clock's ticking, and maybe we need a wedding invitation that says wedding at eleven o'clock in the morning or something like that, so we know what the deadline is and we're in on the urgency. And we're going to talk about the fact you can put a clock on any story. I'm not saying you should put a clock on every story, but you can put a clock on most stories to increase the urgency. So we're going to think of some stories that have clocks. So I was thinking of Beauty and the Beast has that sense that the Do you, do you know The Last
0: that, Petal will fall. That's right. But and it, she has to say that she loves him by but the But
1: doesn't it fall on his isn't he got a birthday? Isn't it his isn't it his twenty I think it's related like to a twenty-first birthday, it's a number or, um, of years after yeah. the curse has been laid. It's, it's specific, I think, and our listeners will tell us if it's not. But I think it is. I think it's a there's a birthday, there's a moment, and so that puts time pressure. And the other film that I think of with this is the film Clockwise, because it's got the word clock in it, maybe, but also because I think the whole is written by Michael Frayn, the playwright, featuring John Cleese, and he has to get to a headmaster's conference to deliver a speech. So it's a fixed time, and the entire Film is his failing to do that, and the journey to get there, and and everything. I think I get the sense it's called clockwise because it's a bit of a formal exercise for Michael Frame to go. I'm going to just have that purity of form, and it's really great for that. And then another thing you can do is what I think of as a bomb, which is seeding something that's going to go off at some point in the play, but not yet, and you don't know when. So an example, an obvious example would be something like someone puts a gun in a drawer. We know there's a gun in the drawer. Someone's going to use the gun at some point. But it could also be someone's saying early in the play, tonight's night, I'm going to tell my mum what I think of her. We don't know when, but we know that's going to happen at some point. So then we're carrying that threat. That bomb is being carried around the room for the rest of the piece. And we're going to think about some examples of that and think about some examples in their plays. And finally, this isn't really an exercise. It's more about what I was trying to think what I do when I'm refining a play. And the idea is sort of about family. I think of it as family, but really it's about relationships and asking the questions of your characters in the play, how are they related? Because sometimes I'll find that I've got a character who's on the periphery. You've got, say, you've got a family and then you've got a character on the periphery who doesn't seem to be related to them or a character that serves a function but isn't connected in some way. And it's worth asking the question, how are they related? Because if they can be related in some way, it brings so much more value to the play. It increases the stakes of the relationships. You've got history. You've got you've got something to play with. And if two characters are complete strangers, you're really starting from scratch with your play, which you totally can do. And there are great plays where people are strangers. But actually, often, if you can find a way of bonding them into that world of the play earlier, and that that in a way is very easy sometimes. You just make a decision. You just say, oh, they were at school together and suddenly activates that relationship in a way that enables it to carry much more heft and meaning and, and the dialogue suddenly deepens and becomes more full. And also there's, there's more for the audience to go, well, what is their relationship? What's going on? Whereas if they're strangers, we, we get it from straight away. So that's the sort of process that I often go through with the play and I found that those floating characters on the outskirts, either you pull them in or with some plays, When I wrote Earthquakes in London, there was a whole character who went all the way through who quite late, I think it was in rehearsals even maybe, I just went, oh, she doesn't do anything. I just slotted her out of the whole play. It didn't change the play at all. She was in 10, 15 scenes. She just completely came away from the play and it didn't alter anything. She was completely inactive in the play. So that's something to keep an eye out is those characters. Do you either pull them in or maybe get rid of them?
0: Apparently there is a version of Star Wars the Phantom Menace where they have cut the character of Jar Jar Binks out completely, apart from one he does one thing at the beginning that affects the plot and apparently you can take him out of the whole rest of the film and it doesn't change
1: the it film. It makes no difference. If only they had done that at the time. I assume that's not an official George Lucas <laughs> no, re it's a fan re-cut. cut. Yeah. Well, there you go. So so maybe we should rechristen that exercise either Pull Jar Jar in, into the family or um, jettison Jar Jar. Yeah, and that's it. And then I think if we've got time today, we might also talk about other forms, anti-dramatic forms, other structures, non-Western narrative structures, because I think there's a big discussion to be had about all of that. We'll see if we've got time. And if not, we will, uh, we'll do it next week.
0: We have a question this week from AJ have you ever written something you thought and still think is a great piece of writing or project that was rejected or failed?
1: That's a good question. Um, I don't know, it's hard. I think normally if I've got something that I thought was had something good in it and it gets rejected, I'd tend to take, not instantly and not almost consciously, i take an idea from it and use it later. So I did write a play when I was 25 about Prince William going to the island of Iona after university, but before embarking on a public life to try and work out who he was. And, you know, it had Harry in it and it had ghosts of Diana and other kings. And and actually, I think with a bit of work, it could have been quite interesting, but it didn't go on. And then, of course, actually, I ended up writing a play about the royal family and William with a ghost of Diana in it. So I'm trying to think about, I'm trying to think of an example of something that I genuinely, I don't know. I think what's hard is that if I get something quite conclusively rejected, I, I tend to try and I tend to listen to that and I do sort of lose faith in it. I don't think I've got projects where I, I'm still waving it now going, you've got to put this on. This is amazing. But it's more, I've got projects that I feel didn't have their moment, like for whatever circumstances or the production or something never quite landed in the way that they could have done. And that's hard because you don't get a second chance. You, you know, if you first, Production of a play doesn't land, it, that's it, because no one's going to revive a play that didn't do that well. So that's why writers get quite anxious with the first, particularly the first production, because either you're launching your play or you're burying your play. And I've, having worked on it for quite a long time and caring about it, it really matters. So I think that's happened more. I really want to come up with an example, but I must say it's not because I haven't had plays rejected. I've had lots of plays rejected and there's lots in the draw, but I'm not sure now there's any that I would want to get back out
0: (laughs) thank you remember everyone you can send in your questions and thoughts on the theatre world to info at oldfirestation.org.uk that's all this week great bye Bye. how to write a play is hosted by mike Bartlett and alex coke editing and music is by hannah gallardo parsons and it's produced by the old fire station oxford Please support us by giving five star ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts to help us get seen by more theatre makers. This show receives no exterior funding. If you'd like to support the work of the Old Fire Station, please donate at oldfirestation.org.uk.